you very much, Rob. And good morning to all of you. If you are new with us today, either in person or online, a special welcome to you. My name is Sandy, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really happy to be here speaking with you today. I was told recently that my preaching is a little bit unusual, and I'm gonna hear that as a good thing, but I think I have figured out the reason why. I really love stories. I love hearing stories, I love telling stories, and I love especially reading stories. And this has proven in my life to be just a very small problem because Ryan and I are moving again for what I really hope will be the last time for a very long time. You know, we just really wanted to be able to participate in the conversation about bridge traffic this summer, so we're heading over west, so we'll have something to talk with you all about as the weather gets warmer. And for those of you keeping track, this will in fact be the fourth time in the past 18 months that Ryan and I have moved, which really is too many times. But the good news is, I have done extensive hands-on research on this topic, and I have figured out the scientifically determined best method of moving so that you don't have any stress at all. And it's gonna change your life. Are you ready for it? Just get rid of everything that you own. Everything. Each time that Ryan and I have moved, we've gone through our belongings and we've thought about whether we really liked them enough to pack them and move them another time. And more often than not, the answer to that has been no. There aren't many things at all that we actually like that much, as it turns out. And we've downsized so much, in fact, that if you have purchased something at Value Village in the past 18 months, particularly if that thing was decorative or cute or yellow, there's a pretty good chance it lived with me at some point in its life. But there is a limit to this strategy, and here's where my problem lies. Because for all of our donating and all of our downsizing, one thing that really hasn't gotten any smaller at all is our collection of books. And my family and friends who helped me move into and then back out of a third floor apartment in a building with no elevators can attest to that, and I'm very, very sorry. But there's just something about giving away a well-loved story that feels too close to giving away a friend. And so I was reflecting on this this week as I packed up my much-loved books for the 50 millionth time, and I was reminded that there is a reason that stories are so central to our lives. And maybe you're not a reader, but even if you're not, I bet you do watch Netflix or movies or play video games. Even when we sit down to catch up with friends and family, we do it by telling stories of what happened while we were apart or by recounting stories of what happened when we were together. And each time we tell the story, it gets more exaggerated and more drawn out just because of the joy of remembering and telling and hearing a really good story. And I think this is reflective of a much bigger truth, which is that each of us, whether we are aware of it or not, are shaped by a story that helps us make sense of the world and of our place in the world. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in our hearts a sense of beginning and end, a sense of being a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. And if we have decided to follow Jesus with our lives, if we have known his grace and his salvation, then we also know, at least in our brain, what our story is. Ours is the story of the Bible, of God who created all things and created them good. It's the story of sin, which twisted and thwarted God's good creation. It's the story of redemption, of God who relentlessly chases down, restores, and redeems what he created to be good. It's the story of Jesus, who restored us to life through his death and who one day will make all things new. So my story, 
isn't really about me at all. It's about Jesus and what he is doing in my little life. But our brains also know that we live in a world that is telling us a very different story. And it's a story that is to a large extent incompatible with the biblical story. In this story, my life is very much about me. And as a result, my identity and my value and my worth are very fragile and fluctuating things. If you've been following along either in person or online the past few weeks, then you know that we're in the middle of a sermon series on mending relationships, focusing on practical ways that we can make sure that we are loving people the way that Jesus has loved us. And I am here today to tell you that the story that you are living into, the source from which you draw your identity, the lens through which you see the world matter for your relationships. If we're going to be in relationship with one another well, then we need to live authentically in the identity that has been secured for us by Jesus. Because if we don't, whether we are aware of it or not, then our identities and our relationships will be shaped by a different story. Our ability to maintain healthy and God-honoring relationships is directly linked to our ability to live faithfully and authentically inside the story that God has written for us. We're going to look at this concept a little more, and because I really love a good story, we're going to do it by looking at an episode in the life of Paul in Acts chapter 27. And to set the context for you a little bit here, in chapter 27, we are catching Paul in the final stages of a plan. He had been arrested in Jerusalem for causing a commotion by proclaiming the freedom and grace that is found in Jesus. And this is not really an unusual thing for Paul. He's been around the block a few times, subverting the dominant story of the Roman Empire, which is that Caesar, the emperor, was both Lord and God, with the simple truth that actually, Jesus alone is king. Jesus and not Caesar is worthy of your loyalty. Jesus and not Caesar is your source of life. Jesus and not Caesar is the one who set you free. Paul has made three laps by now all the way around the Roman Empire, making both Roman leaders and Jewish leaders really quite angry at him. And it all kind of comes to a head in this final scene in Jerusalem. And then Paul spends his time from chapter 21 clear through to chapter 27, where we pick up the story, working his way up the political justice system of Rome. So he appears first in Jerusalem before the Roman tribunal and the Jewish council, then he goes to Caesarea, where he appears before the governor of Judea. And then finally, he's sent exactly where he wants to go, which is to Rome, to have his case tried before the supreme high court of Caesar himself. Paul's going to march right on up to Caesar, say right to his face that he is there for the crime of proclaiming far and wide that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Have to hand it to Paul, the guy really had a whole lot of nerve. And if you look at his journey on a map from Caesarea to Rome, it's not really impossibly far. It should just be a well-planned ship ride away. But the problem is that the ship that he gets on just will not go to Rome. From the very beginning, the wind is against them and their journey is slow and they can't keep a consistent direction because the wind keeps blowing them off course. And so by the time they finally arrive at the island in the middle there called Crete, they have lost just so much time, and they're low on resources, and the crew is exhausted. 
but they decide they're going to keep on going and they're going to go to Rome anyway. And this is where their journey really gets out of control because in verse 13, quite ominously, a gentle wind begins to blow. So they lower their anchor to hold them down a little bit and they make really slow progress along the shore, but then that gentle wind becomes a hurricane force wind. It turns into a northeaster that makes them abandon their course altogether. And then they can't set a direction, they can't make any kind of progress. All they can do is just hang on for dear life and let the wind take them wherever the wind is going to take them. I wonder if this is sounding maybe a little bit too much like the way that life has been over the past two years. These guys are out in open water, they're totally out of control, but they've got this ship and it's keeping them afloat and all they have to do is keep it together until things settle down. But not only does the ship not want to go to Rome, the ship also does not want to stay together. The winds just keep coming and things start to fall apart. Their lifeboat starts to come loose, so they pull that up and they secure it on top of the ship, but then the winds and the waves are beating them so hard that they have to pass ropes under their boat so they can literally tie it together to keep it from falling to pieces. And then the storm still is raging, so they have to start throwing things overboard. They throw all of their cargo, the stuff they were supposed to take with them to Italy. They start throwing over their tackle and their provisions for tomorrow and the next day because all they can focus on is just surviving this day, the one that they're in just right now. And on this day, all they have to do is just keep their ship together. And I think we all go through these kinds of seasons when out of nowhere, this ominous wind starts to blow and it throws us totally off course. When our whole world gets flipped and our assumptions about the way that life works are challenged and everything that we've worked so hard to build has to be abandoned and thrown overboard because all we can do is just hang on for today. So we're left bringing together scraps and tying them up and hoping for dear life that we can just build ourselves a ship that is going to keep us from drowning. And what I think is really interesting about these past few years that we've all had together is that to varying degrees, all of us have been hit by the same storm. And all of us have just been doing everything that we can just to keep our ship together. That's ship with a P, by the way. And all of us are beginning to spring leaks. In their book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter and Jerry Cesaro outline three things that we tend to hold on to in seasons like this. Things that we build our metaphorical ships out of to help us weather the storm. Three lies that the story that the world is telling us would have us believe about who we are and where our value comes from. And they go something like this. Lie number one, I am what I do. So what have I achieved? How productive am I? Am I able, even in the midst of this crisis, to keep everything together? Is my home clean? Is my lawn as well kept as my neighbor's lawn? Do my kids have matching socks? What is my job title that I get to tell people that I have? And how successful am I at that job? And maybe we start to even make these scorecards in our minds where we keep track of how well we are doing, how valuable the life that we have built is by how successful we are in work or in school or at home or in family or in relationships or even at church. But the problem with this is that if I build my ship out of what I do, then my value falls or it rises 
I sink or I swim, based on how well I am able to maintain all of my responsibilities all of the time and prove myself to be useful to the world around us. Or how about this one, line number two, I am what I have. Our culture measures success largely by what we own. Who has the nicest house or the most money or the best clothes or the most comfortable life? Who has the best education or the most degrees? Who's the one who wins all of the awards? Who has the most supportive family or the best personality or the biggest circle of friends? And the problem with building my ship out of this is that then I am not enough unless I have enough and unless I have more than you do. And then line number three, I am what others think of me. Can I tell you guys a secret? Has to stay between you and me and all the people on the internet though, okay? My secret is that I would really, really like it if you thought I was doing a good job. And not even like just today, I mean categorically, all of the time, would really like it if you thought that I was doing a good job. And I think that most people who really care about their jobs and who really care about the people that they work for feel this way, but I also think that we tend to put more value in the opinions of other people than we maybe even realize. You know, will they like my clothes or my hair or my shoes? Will they think I'm funny or smart? Will they think I'm weird if I wear my mask? Will they think I'm weird if I don't wear my mask? Will they think I'm weak if I admit that I'm struggling? Will they still want to be around me if they know that I'm sad? Will they think less of me if they know how hard I have to try just to keep my ship together? And I know we talk about this a lot with our kids, you know, don't let what others think of you define who you are, but if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, then it is still so easy to build our ships out of the opinions of others at the age of 20 or 30 or 50 or 90. But here's the problem with the story that the world is telling us. It makes me the central, sovereign, and controlling character in my own life, and I am not big enough to build or manufacture or sustain my own value. I'm just not. Inevitably, I'm going to drop the ball, or I'm gonna get it wrong, or my plans are going to fall through, or I'm going to lose something or someone that I value. I'll let somebody down, or I will meet someone who just doesn't like me very much, and when those things happen, my ship is going to spring leaks, and I will start to sink. And not only will I sink, but I will bring you down with me because you will have succeeded where I failed, you will have what I can't have, or you will disagree or disapprove that something, of something that is fundamental to my sense of self. And I will forget that you are also just a person who is doing everything that you can to keep your ship afloat because I'm over here wrapping my boat up in ropes and like the harder I wrap, the further I push you away. And this story traps us in a cycle of shame and comparison and blame that is toxic to our relationships and leaves us exhausted from continually trying to keep our ships together as new leaks spring up in our identity. And if we go back to the story in Acts chapter 27, this is where the men in the boat are at too. Many days have gone by. The storm has gotten so bad that they can't see the sun in the daytime or the stars at nighttime, and they finally give up all hope that they will ever be saved from this. And after they had gone a long time without food because they had to toss so many of their provisions overboard, 
Paul, who again really has a lot of nerve, gets up and says, well men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. And I mean, he did say, to his credit, he did say back in verse 10 that he didn't think continuing on with their journey was such a good idea. But still, Paul really has a lot of nerve. And then instead of backpedaling, Paul says something even more outrageous next. He says, But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Just the ship, just the thing that is in between you and the water, it's going to be fine. And I have to admit that if I am on that boat, this is the point in the narrative where I just lose all of my patience with Paul. Here they are, they're in the middle of open water in a raging storm with wind and waves so strong that things just keep being battered to pieces. They haven't eaten or slept in days. They can't even see the sun, let alone the shore. And Paul says, don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. You just have to lose the ship. And I'm thinking that Paul doesn't seem to understand what is happening because in this moment, I am the ship. The ship sinks and I sink. The ship is destroyed and I am destroyed because if there is no ship, all that there is are treacherous waves and winds and rocks and I really don't like my chances with those things. But thankfully, the men on the ship are either much more patient than I am or else they're just too tired to argue because Paul gets to keep talking and then he does say something that is truly helpful in verses 23 to 26. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And let's just take a minute to appreciate Paul's language here. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Paul is redefining himself in this moment because if we look at him objectively through the eyes of the world, then what we see is a disgraced former Pharisee who left behind his status and his position to follow and serve a crucified savior. And now he's a prisoner of Rome and he's on his way to what will probably be a death sentence. And on the journey, he finds himself sitting on top of a sinking ship in the middle of a raging storm. But there is another story unfolding here. And in that story, Paul is not a prisoner. He's not a shipmate. He is a servant, and he belongs to God. And the ship, the boat that they're all on, is the only way that they know of to get across the water and make it to Rome. It's the only frame of reference that they have. But Paul, meanwhile, is living in a different story. And in this story, he belongs to God, and he knows perfectly well that God doesn't need a ship to get them where they're going. In fact, God has almost never been this subtle about getting his people across the water. If I recall my biblical history correctly, he's really more likely to just move the water out of the way so that the Israelites can walk across on the bottom of the sea or to have a giant fish come swallow up Jonah and then spit him back out on the shores of Nineveh or just take a casual walk on top of the water to meet his disciples and tell the water to be still and be quiet. Paul's life is secure because the fundamental thing that is defining him in this moment isn't what he does or what he has 
or what people think, or even what is happening all around him. It's the simple truth that he belongs to God, and God doesn't need his ship. So even if the ship sinks, Paul's going to be okay. And if you haven't read much about the life of Paul in Acts, or in the letters that we have in the New Testament, I really encourage you to do so. I promise it's a very good story. His life is impressive and interesting and difficult. Absurd things happen to him almost everywhere he goes. But I think the most interesting thing about Paul is that whenever he identifies himself, whenever he says who he is, he speaks about himself in relationship to Jesus. He calls himself a servant of Christ or an apostle of Christ or a prisoner for Christ, who is called by the will of God, set apart for the gospel of God, and sent through Jesus by God. And this is Paul's secret, the one that he talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. You know, he's writing this letter to these people from jail, and yet he can say this, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul's secret is that he has learned that he doesn't need to build himself a ship. His identity is already secure. He is already known and loved by Jesus. He is already a beloved child of God. He's already been rescued and redeemed. He's already been seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. He already has a home and a refuge and a life that can never be taken away from him. And so he's given up on writing his own story, and he's living instead in the story that Jesus has already written for him. And this is a story that doesn't change. And so if you and I have known the grace and salvation of Jesus, if we've decided to follow him with our lives, then this is our story too. If you take away everything else, everything that I do and everything that I have and everything that people think of me, fundamentally who I am is loved by God the Father, rescued and redeemed and restored by Jesus, my Savior. The ship isn't going to make it. But we're still going to be okay because God never needed our ship anyway. And there is freedom here. There's freedom not only to rest from the exhausting and frankly pretty embarrassing work of trying to keep my ship from leaking, but it also makes me free to love you too. Paul writes those letters that I talked about in the New Testament to people who have partnered with him and people who have supported him but he also writes to people who abandoned him or betrayed him, people who argued with him and frustrated him and let him down. And when Paul speaks about these people, when he addresses them, when he says who they are, he calls them those who are loved by God or those who are called by God or those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. When he encourages the Roman church in Romans chapter 14 to not let insignificant debates and fights come between them, he tells each side to not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's who we are to each other. Abandoning ship not only frees me to discover that I am not what I do, and I am not what I have, and I am not what people think of me, but it frees me to see that you are not what you do either, and you are not what you have 
and you are not what I think of you. In God's story, fundamentally, who you are is loved by God who created you in his image and loved by Jesus, the Savior who died for you. So my job isn't to sink your ship so that mine can float. It's to show you that we've never needed ships anyway. It means that I can love you when you disagree with me and when I disagree with you. It means that I can celebrate your joys authentically and mourn your losses sincerely, regardless of how they compare to mine, because I don't need to keep score anymore. I can be myself apart from you because who I am is all wrapped up in who Jesus is and who you are to me is the one for whom Christ died. And this truth is transformative. It changes the way that we treat people. It changes the way that we do life together. Incidentally, Paul and his shipmates do lose their ship and they do make it to shore safely anyway, but not before this weirdly wholesome moment happens on the ship while they're all still afraid for their lives. Because the angel hadn't just told Paul that he was going to be okay. He said, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And this all who sail with you, by the way, was not a group of Paul's friends. Paul is a prisoner on this boat, remember? So he's there with a centurion, some other prisoners, and a bunch of people who were just trying to do their job but had their cargo ship co-opted for prisoner transport to Rome. So at best, they're strangers who are mildly annoyed that Paul is there with them. And more likely, they just don't like Paul all that much, especially after that whole I told you so business a couple verses earlier. But Paul is here, not as a prisoner, not as a shipmate. He is a servant of God on this ship. And God has given him these passengers, these people for whom Jesus died, to love. And so they've been drifting on this boat for 14 days at this point, two full weeks. And they can finally start to sense that they're getting near the land, but they're exhausted and they're afraid and they're probably really cranky and hungry and tired. And then this happens in verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Together, there were 276 of us on board. And these people were Paul's enemies, that he cares for them. He ministers to them. He meets their needs. He gets them to eat something. He breaks bread with them and then gives thanks to God with them. And I wonder if you hear in that the echoes of the love of Jesus who broke bread and gave thanks so often with the people who were given to him to love. This is the Jesus who cares for every part of us, who cares for us physically and emotionally and spiritually. He cares for us and is present with us in our real life. And he calls his servants to do the same. And Paul isn't just a passenger on this boat. Fundamentally, he's a servant and he belongs to God. And so here, in the middle of the crisis that is going on all around them, 
He brings unity instead of division and shows people the love of Jesus. And I don't know what your storm looks like this week. I don't know which ominous winds have begun to blow that threaten to throw you off course. And I don't know what your ship looks like either, what bits and pieces you've been trying so hard to keep together. But I hope that in the midst of all of that, this week you are able to hear the other story that is unfolding all around you. The story of God who loves you, of Jesus who redeemed you and who holds your identity securely in his hands. He's inviting you to let go of your ship and to live in freedom instead. And if living in your story, in your real story, is something that you want to work more on this week, I've left a little exercise for you out on the welcome desk. Um, you can use it just to help you make sure that both your heart and your head are living in the story that God says is true. I promise he's a really good author, and it's a very good story. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you today thankful that you know us. You have called us by name. You've claimed us as your own. You have welcomed us into your household. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to rest in what you have already done. Help us to define ourselves not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. Help us to hear in every moment the story that you are speaking over us. Let it be louder and clearer than the story that our world is telling us because we have lived in that story already and it has left us tired and discouraged. So would you remind us again of your story, a story of life and forgiveness, a story of redemption and resurrection, a story that has a sure ending of life everlasting in your presence. And God, we thank you that because of Jesus, this is our story. Would you help us to know it, to live in it, and to be freed to love those around us. And we will give all of the glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.